0: It is difficult to believe three entire decades have passed since the celebrated year of 1991. Here in the U.S., it was a hangover of sorts from a 10-year stretch of excess and irreverence fondly known as the 1980s. Back in 91, the world experienced the wind down of the Persian Gulf War. We were enjoying the O.J. Simpson reprisal of the beloved lawman Nordberg in the cinematic sequel to The Naked Gun alongside Leslie Nielsen. The capabilities of Al Gore's genius invention of the internet was only in its infancy. Furthermore, 1991 saw the release of an exceptionally large quantity of celebrated popular music recordings. A few of these very well-received recordings include Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 by Guns N' Roses, Out of Time by R.E.M., Diamonds and Pearls by Prince, Death Certificate by Ice Cube, Octung Baby by U2, Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden, Emotions by Mariah Carey, and Metallica's self-titled Black Album, just to name a few. The impressive list goes on and on. There are many observers and musical academics who consider 1991 just as meaningful as another absurdly historical year, 1967. It is truly remarkable that three of 1991's most enduring recordings were released on the exact same day, Tuesday, September 24th, 1991. On this episode of Five Dollar Buzz, we examine them in great detail. Nevermind by Nirvana, The Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest, and Blood Sugar Sex Magic by The Red Hot Chili Peppers. So please, lock the door behind you, adjust the towel, take your seat, and politely hit the fan setting to on. You're walking in on a 90s nostalgia session of Five Dollar Buzz. <laughs>
1: Well, hello, folks. We're back here in the uh, five-dollar buzz. Thank you, George for that wonderful cold open. I wanted to add a couple albums. You know, Loveless by My Bloody Valentine, uh, Massive Attack. I forget the name of the damn album. That was a huge album of that time too. That year, there was. I mean, it was it was it was all over the place. And uh, I don't think you mentioned was Metallica's black album that year.
2: I did mention. Yes, it, it, was. Was. it was. Oh yeah,
1: you said it. Okay. Um. <clears throat> so yeah, it was definitely a time a change. It's when I had moved to San Francisco from Los Angeles, moved up with a bunch of my friends, and things were a lot more different looking at that time. And, you know, it was I was turned 23 four days before these three albums were about to discuss dropped. And it was, in, for me in particular, and you guys are about 10 years younger than me, roughly, except for Kevin. <clears throat> about my age. So two of us are right around the same time, and the two of you are about 10 years younger. So... But I think it equally had an impact on all four of us, definitely, all of those albums, um, as well as all the other ones that were briefly mentioned. So we'll just get into it. The three albums that we're going to discuss tonight are Nevermind by, uh, of course, uh, Nirvana, uh, The Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest, and the last one is Blood Sugar Sex Magic by Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, All various... Uh, for Nirvana and um, Tribe Called Quest, it was their second studio album to be released. Um, for Tribe Called Quest, it was on an independent label, Jive. For <clears throat> Nirvana, it was on Geffen, and uh, help. And I'll get to that in a second. And Chili Peppers were newly minted on Warner Brothers. We'll talk about that. So, it was September 24th, 1991, and away we go we'll start with nirvana and their album Nevermind, 1991 an album called bleach had come out only two years prior uh with a band that i saw open up for sonic youth at the palladium theater and i remember when after the show none of us knew who that band was but afterwards we all knew who the fuck that was and we went out to toxic shock records which is a famous record store in uh, um, the Inland, Inland Empire in the beginning of the Inland Empire, just on the outskirts of uh, the Los Angeles County, and that went every day looking for the S album Bleach that supposedly was coming out. And the only way you got that information then, of course, was a zine or a spin magazine or something like along those lines. That album came out, and I played that motherfucker until the grooves wore off. I mean, the lo fi $600 album was you know. For those of us who listened to it, it was Nirvana, <laughs> in all senses of the word. So, come couple years later, I'm driving down to San Diego. I'm working at Amtrak, and um, I'm just about to move to San Francisco. Uh, and the song plays on the radio, and they said it's by Nirvana. I said, "What?" And it was, you know, smells like Teen Spirit. And lo and behold, goddamn, I was like, "What the." fuck <laughs> like, it didn't sound anything like the prior record it was well produced it was polished but it slammed you didn't hear anything nothing like that sounded like anything on pop radio or even on any aor well, uh, radio labels radio stations and I, it was like immediately i went and bought the record and fucking played that song about 100 times before i went on to the rest of the album so that album was produced by Butch Vig. They found him. Um, see, they found Butch uh, after looking for. They didn't want a producer that sounded like anybody else, or that was a big name producer that was going to take points and be kind of an asshole about it. So uh, Butch was in a band at the time. Um, I forget the name of the band. It wasn't Garbage yet, but it was a, it was another band, a really lo-fi band. and uh, Killdozer was what it was, and they just. They they went to it, got in a studio here in Van Nuys, recorded uh, almost the entire album, save for uh, Polly, which was pre recorded at a different time or a different location up in uh, Olympia, Washington. Um, the album, uh, they wanted it to sound, uh, he was heavily influenced at the time by the likes of the Pixies. Um, Trump Lamond also came out in 1991. That was probably his single most, uh, Kurt Cobain's most ins- uh, biggest inspiration. At the time with the Pixies, R.E.M., the Smithereens of all bands, and the Melvins, uh, another Seattle band uh, that he had grew up with, lived in a refrigerated cardboard box on Dale Crover's porch, the drummer for the Melvins at one point. So they get in there and he just wanted to make a record that sounded like that had the mainstream fusion of the Knack and the Bassie Rollers with heavier bands. Which is Black Flag and Black Sabbath, um, which is that you know age-old term of what grunge is—that synthesis of sort of you know heavy metal and punk, you know, and, and infused with a certain pop element to it—and pretty much is considered a cornerstone of the grunge genre. Now, you could look at grunge and roll your eyes today, but at the time, it was simply a term that hadn't been commodified to the nth degree. It is because of this album that you all of a sudden had bands that would never have ever, ever been on a major label get gobbled up in a bidding war frenzy because this album was not intended to be a hit. Geffen had no idea it was going to be a hit. Smells Like Teen Spirit was not intended to be. It was supposed to be the rollover song and Come As You Are was supposed to be the one that brought everybody in. They did not and weren't prepared and had no marketing element behind the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit when that came out four days prior to when the album dropped. They had no clue that it was going to literally bomb the system. You got to remember, this album came from a band who was living you know, out of, like I said, cardboard boxes. And the next thing you know, at the height of um, Nevermind Selling Power was selling 300,000 albums a week for about six months. That is like an astronomically huge amount of records sold. I think only, you know, uh, at that time, well, there was a lot of records. It wasn't their debut album, the biggest debut album, of course. George could talk about that, which is Guns N' Roses. Uh, so, you know, they, they did this album, and all these songs are based upon his relationship with Bikini Kill drummer Toby Vale. Toby Vale and him, you know, the fact the song Smells Like Teen Spirit was written on the wall. Kurt smells like teen spirit and they were referring to the deodorant for women. (laughs) And he thought it meant a rebel yell for the teen generation and it's angst ridden. So there is, you know, a certain naivete and sincerity in Kurt Cobain, even though he's not nearly as intelligent, he's an artist. He's not a genius. Let's just put it that way. There's difference, right? He's a genius artist, not a genius intellect, shall we say. Those two things don't always have to meet. Um, He was never an accomplished guitar player, but when he played the guitar, he made it fit the song and uh, was very emotionally driven, like a lot of uh, blues players. Anyway, want to step in? I can just keep going.
3: I have a question. Go ahead. Um, Do you think that when they recorded... um, that album and that song cuz i i'm not 100% sure but I, as i understand it, it was a fairly short process it didn't they knocked, they banged that album out pretty quickly I he wouldn't
1: think. do more than three cut he, he would never do more than three takes as a singer not
3: more oh, there's I only not, one
1: there was only one song he had to be convinced that john lennon would do overdubs with his vocals to get a fourth take on two of the songs which Vig had to uh, uh, the fake or trick cobain uh by saying that now nah, we fucked this up we need to fix that. In fact, he got so during the process of singing of, of recording the song Drain You I believe. he got he got Cobain got so frustrated they r- ripped into a song that they um had been doing on the side and Butch Vig pressed record and that is the song Endless Nameless which is the track at the very end of the album if you had the CD it's the one after um uh it's on the something same track. In the way. something in the way. Ten minutes and thirty four seconds later. That- I thought that
3: was Polly. That was that song. That was so far later. No,
1: no, Polly's in the middle. Oh, it's track five.
3: It's been a while. But what, yeah. I'm, what I'm what I'm asking though, what I'm trying to get at is that do you think that once when, when that song happened after just like smells like Teen Spirit, for example, happened and they let's say they did two or three takes of it, do you think they all knew everybody in the room knew that that was. A powder keg like that that was just dynamite i mean because i i think even i remember as a kid i was probably in um i don't know sixth grade and i remember this kid named john smith walking around and he had a um, speaker you know tape player on his shoulder and i the first time i'd ever heard it and he looked at me like i was an asshole because i'd never heard of it before or yet but he was walking around listening to it and it was instantly i mean i was like what is that amazing sound you know do you think they knew that? When no, they, when they were doing it, no, not
1: even a bit. In fact, I mean, he was so he had such disdain for the song after it became huge that he simply took it off the playlist. <laughs> sets later on, he refused to play it. He changed the lyrics, garbled the guitar, fucking strangle it. He hated it. He said, "Something I in the
3: way it. is an amazing song off that album too." Oh, something, something in the way.
1: way is an amazing song. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a fictionalized version of him living underneath a bench, which he did not. I said he lived in the cardboard box. And it's, you know, meant to evoke a sort of spiritlessness uh, in, in himself during that period. But it's not necessarily taken for fact as many people have tried to give it accordingly. You know, the, the album went on to unparalleled Heights. You know, they joined the tour with, um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, oddly enough, as the second band, and when the band was, Chili Peppers went on the road with the Smashing Pumpkins for Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and then they wanted Nirvana, and really Corbin wouldn't play because he also used to date Courtney Love, so that caused friction. So, exit Smashing Pumpkins, enter Nirvana within two months of that tour. Nirvana's headlining everything.
3: Interesting. um, interesting parallel between uh, the Chili Peppers, though, and Nirvana in that situation is that their prior album, Nirvana's Bleach and the Chili Peppers' Mother's Milk, were both just like that surface, scratching surface. And then this, their, their, that following album is what, I mean, exploded both bands into another world. Or, I mean, unless you would think that Bleach did that for Nirvana, but I actually, I mean, I think we can all say it met, the, it, it met the masses with Nevermind. The Chili say, Peppers
1: right. were Los Angeles band. So they had already, you know, with their first eponymously named album, then Funky, Freaky Styly, Uplift Mo Full Party Plan, and then Mother's Milk. And then their, uh, I think it's their fifth album, not their seventh album, is the yeah. uh, uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So they, the other four, uh, most of them were done by Michael Beanhorn, the producer. We'll get into that in a minute. Mm. But I think that those albums, um, you know, reflected this sort of anarchy of the Chili Peppers. So they already had a big following. They, they were everywhere. Nirvana, you know, they didn't have a following. Even with Bleach, it was still small. Like I said, when Kim Gordon introduced Sonic Youth, introduced them to uh, David Geffen uh, to get on Geffen Records, because Geffen had signed Sonic Youth oddly enough before that, um, that had... Repercussions that nobody understood, including Kim Gordon. All they wanted to do was sell as many records as Sonic Youth's previous album goo had sold. That was mm. that was the, that, was the uh, that that was what they were focused on. That was what they were hoping to do: is just sell that many records. And they eclipsed that by you know I, I don't even know. They just wanted to sell two hundred fifty thousand. They started doing that in a week. Yeah.
3: um
1: Again, nobody understood. You know, and you're going to get to that when you talk about the Chili Peppers is a band struggling with this crisis of identity and who you are, the music you play versus the fame you capture. And I know that's an age old thing, but so many of those superstars back in the day really wanted it, you know, and Cobain probably did, too, on some level, but Chris Novoselic didn't. And, you know, and when Chad Channing, the drummer originally for Chili Pepper for uh, the Nirvana had left, in fact, there's only one song that he is on that is Paulie. he does the symbols and he doesn't get credited for being on the song um the, uh, when dave Grohl came in you know they found their drummer I, again it, it coalesced they created something it wasn't anything that quite existed in the mainstream a lot has to do with the music video that that also just carried them forward mm-hmm. and you know that even all these other legendary albums that we mentioned in the upfront, you know, some of those were by big bands at that time. And some of those were big because they were big in the UK. You know, this was something that became worldwide. Nirvana's hit the entire world. And yeah. It- you
2: know what the thing is, man? Uh, I, well, you know, when I think about, I was in, in 1991, I was in ninth grade. So I was a freshman in high school. So I was kind of like at the right place at the right time. for a lot of this stuff and uh i don't know one thing about i I really like nirvana i really like this record a lot and i really think the unsung hero of the record roger is uh chris novoselic Mm
3: -hmm.
2: i really like the way he plays the bass i think it really propels a lot of the songs um and i remember there was this guy i used to work with who uh, really loved nirvana and I remember I was with him the day when Kurt Cobain died. So I was just around this guy was a huge fan. And I'm like, what's, the, what do you really like about these guys? Like, what's so cool? Cause it took me a little while to get into Nirvana. And he's like for three, three guys, just kicking ass. And that always stuck out to me. Cause there was only three of them. And Dave uh, Grohl, who I'm not the hugest fan of his, his, and he's not the greatest drummer in the world from like a f- technical like standpoint, but his velocity is so fucking hard on this album. And it's really at odds with the way he plays the drums on, uh, the MTV unplugged record, which is very subtle. And, uh, he and you just
1: doesn't. A- you want to know what that was? Those drums were heavily manipulated in the recording process.
2: Okay. Cause they sound so loud. <laughs> the drums are so loud on that, uh, on nevermind. But yeah, uh, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, uh, Nova Selleck, you know, two of my favorite songs, my two favorite songs on this album are not one that most people think about are Breed. When, when I listened to this record the other day, I was like, this song is so fucking good, Breed. There's just so much energy. And a lot of that is Nova Selleck. And my other favorite song is uh, Lounge Act. And they're both bass heavy. And, you know, Cobain is singing with so much urgency. Mm -hmm. uh and uh about the videos and i know we want i want to let kevin jump in here but uh i remember the in bloom video was really cool because they were kind of doing like a uh what was that old show uh ed sullivan yeah ed Ed sullivan show show. was really cool but uh i don't know man i really think that nirvana gets a lot of credit for uh You know, the music world changed almost overnight, not really overnight, but it felt like overnight. But, you know, I I personally remember just seeing the Alice in Chains video, Man in the Box, which is like a black and white video. And I just remember like, yo, there's something different about these guys. They're from Seattle. They're not from L.A. They're not wearing makeup. And like I know Soundgarden was around. Jane's Addiction was around. And I don't know. I feel like Nirvana kind of gets a lot of credit and maybe... It's just like the easy uh, way for people just to kind of latch on to something and maybe make it to Avatar for the times and the sound. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I really like the album. I really like Nirvana. And, uh, yeah, uh, Kevin,
4: you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. Um, Well, 91, I was my second year at Chico State. Um, those of you unaware, Chico's uh about three hour north of San Francisco. I think a lot of people that aren't from the area, the only reason they have heard of it because back in the day it had such a party school rap that both Playboy and MTV kind of uh perpetuated and added on to. But it's a great college town, and like most college towns, I would say, you know, it's a heavily you know, there's a huge musical influence, whether it's just college bands or just that kind of student population. And my memories of that time, and it's kind of just wonderful to think back on, you know, it's a college town, so basically you're riding your bike and uh, you're riding your bike through student, you know, residential student areas and you're always going to hear music. But it's, you know, it's kind of a rarity when, you're hearing the same music every block. And at that time you could be sure that you're, somebody was to be playing the nevermind album. And then the chili peppers were, you know, huge, huge, huge student rotation back then. And, uh, I, I can't remember who said it, but somebody was talking about, uh, Exile on Main Street. When the Stones put that out, and there's parts of New York City, and people were saying, "Out, no matter where you went in the city of New York, that's the album that people were playing that you heard." And that's kind of how I felt back then. in, in, col- in college, at Chico, was just hearing those albums to the, almost the point where I kind of, kind of turned off. I think a little on um, Nirvana just because it was getting played by so many kids so often, and you're kind of a uh, hit. hit you're enough already mode. And I also at that point, that's when you know. I was kind of introduced to, to Soundgarden and Soundgarden was uh, right up my alley, and that's what I was kind of more leaning towards. But just that time, the music—I mean, I feel like every every week or so, it just seemed like there was a new band that you're kind of, you know, being exposed to. And I remember the, when you said the Man in the Box, Alice in Chains—I remember very clearly at that time, you know, seeing that for the first time and being exposed to the Pumpkins, you know, initially. And it was just obviously a great, great time for music.
2: Yeah, it was absolutely. And, you know, um, I always thought it was interesting, Pete and Roger, I don't know how you guys feel, but it's interesting that, you know, how Dave Grohl has kind of like become this uh, really savior. I don't know what the right way to describe him is like this, like champion of like uh, the rock industry. And Chris Novoselic is basically, I couldn't even tell you what that guy is up to these days and he doesn't really he's kind of really stepped away it's kind of interesting how these two guys paths have uh, diverged
1: and- which makes perfect sense if you knew yeah. both, if you knew who both of them were you know uh, chris novoselic was just a you know he said like he was a punk rock hippie you know and just that's how i define myself sometimes and he was just as happy playing music with his best friend, Kurt Cobain, as he was, you know, hanging out and growing stuff, you know, being a, a you know, a, a nature, a naturist. Um, he, uh, on the, on the, conversely, you know, Dave Grohl was a lot more opportunist and ambitious and bled that into a band that has uh, had more records than Nirvana, still hasn't sold as many records as Nirvana, collectively even. But does uh, he ever do any
2: Nirvana songs? Yeah, is that what he plays yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. of course he did. Yeah, yeah, the ones that he's able to, <laughs> you know. But the um, the thing is, there is that you know, Grohl, it, it's this touchy thing, Grohl is the nicest guy you'll ever meet. But he also, like, there's something about him I can't put my finger on because I don't know him well enough beyond those the few times I've met him that I can't, you know, that I haven't. Been able to, you know, I just know people that work with him. Other people say he's just the nicest guy in the show business. That's, you know, it's like something's lurking underneath there. His music uh, is not nearly as, and he would be the first one to tell you.
2: Yeah, I think his heart, I think his I don't hard. write music
1: as good as Kirk O'Bain. did.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the guy's heart's in the right place. Like he did that documentary uh, series about these recording studios. And I remember I really liked all the episodes he did except for the part when like the very end was like, now here's my video with Joe Walsh or here's my video with uh, whoever else was in the, maybe I want to say like Tom Petty might've been in the, in the, in, the, in one of the episodes, but. Uh, sound
1: yeah. studio. Yeah. Yeah. The, traveling, the traveling sound studio uh, tour that he did for HBO.
2: That was it. Pete, any uh, thoughts, well, closing thoughts on that more? Any thoughts yeah. on the Foo Fighters or any of that? We
3: jazz? can we can we can wrap it up with the with the Nevermind. But I mean, you know, the thing about Dave Grohl, I think, is that um, he had that. He has. He's probably he probably would have been a good Chili Pepper. Those guys all have great work ethics. They kept on cranking out albums. They kept on doing the thing by the studio. They kept on making money, and they were good. You know, after Blood Sugar Sex Magic, I know we're not there yet, but. I don't really care for much of the Chili Peppers, to be honest with you. But we're all gonna go there, I think. <laughs> but I mean, I think Dave Grohl, as a member of Nirvana, probably had the work ethic of Anthony Kiedis and Flea. You know, uh, it's hard to say because uh, Kurt Cobain left us so early. But uh, would he have been more Novoselic or would he have been more Grohl? I don't even know, to be honest with you. you. You might think he's punk rock, but I just don't think you know. He did an MTV Unplugged, so. <laughs> You know, it's like, I don't but know it what, the, they, you know, it, it, it was probably this most special and most amazing one ever. And I don't doubt that at all, but who knows what, I mean, I don't know if they would have gone full green day, but uh, you know, they think they would have made a couple more albums and I don't know.
1: What makes it special is that they did only, it's like, you know, there's not a, there's a, the, the album title is not coincidental. that it's also the beginning of the title of one of his favorite records. Never mind the Bullocks. Here's the Sex Pistols, and mm-hmm. they only recorded one official record, but became legendary because of that one record. Mm-hmm. Nirvana, so you know, is legacy lives on mainly because of the that fact they did three
2: can, out. Sorry to interrupt there, but uh, and the last thing I, I w- would like to ask you guys uh, is like you know I, it seems like it's very fashionable now for like you see a lot of younger folks wearing the Nirvana t-shirt and uh, you know a lot of people claim to be influenced by Kurt Cobain you know one thing about Nevermind it's just like it's not very accessible album like do you ever find yourself at a party or some social event and say hey man let's go on Nevermind it's just more of an introspective uh, recording and I just wonder like are people really getting into nirvana these younger folks or is i it, see
3: nirvana t-shirts on kids. everywhere They're everywhere i, I, I all the time
2: but i'm just wondering uh, are they getting into songs like um well, it's like we all, and,
1: but when we were listening to that shit in the late 80s you know besides our sonic youth and who's could Do and minute men, and men and replacement shirts we also had the doors and the who and, and zeppelin shirts and mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing but we had i mean we had we listened to those albums actively yeah uh but it, it's not a dissimilar I like to think it's not dissimilar, you know, and hoping that they are influenced by, you know, something beyond the musical choices that they have surrounding them today. Yeah.
3: Hey, Look, man, I'm I'm sure some 20 year old never heard of it before listens to that album for the first time. Their mind probably is blown compared yeah. to the stuff that they're used to hearing. So I yeah. would like to think that that album still has that kind of impact on people for the first, that first, that first listen you got from it. That was really incredible. You know, there's so much happens. more I
1: could have talked about like the album cover and everything else, but, I think we can move on. I think it's enough to to you know show sort of where we're going with this episode.
3: yeah, okay, guys. uh we are back from that quick little break. uh thanks for sticking with us here. We are about to move into uh, some cool territory with George, who has um taken a little deep dive on a on an album from that same week. We're talking about september twenty fourth nineteen ninety one and the album is the low end theory by a tribe called quest, which, uh, I mean, I love this album. I listened to it again. It felt like for the first time the other day and such a, just a fantastic album. And, uh, I want to hear, uh, hear George, George's thoughts on it. George tee it up. Let's talk about this thing.
2: Yeah, sure. I appreciate that. So, yeah. Um, just to reiterate the three records that three albums that we're talking about today all came out on the same exact day. Um, roughly 30 years ago to the day uh so this is a a tribe called quest second album called the low end theory and it's uh it's kind of coincidental where i mentioned and i didn't mean this that you know i never really put on a nirvana record uh, in a social setting but whenever i had some people coming over my house and you know i'm never quite sure what people's tastes are and i try and find something right down the middle and i find myself would always when i had a an iPod I would put on the Low End Theory by a Tribe Called Quest because it has this smooth vibe. It has kind of an uplifting, positive vibe to it. And it has this really cool um, jazz feel to it because a lot of uh, the songs on the Low End Theory, were either sampling some old jazz records or they had uh, live bass playing by a famous jazz musician who was a bass player named uh, Ron Carter. And hence the name, The Low End Theory. A lot of the songs were emphasized uh, for the heavy bass sounds to it. And uh, as I mentioned previously, you know, 1991, I was a freshman in high school. So I would left junior high, the cozy confines of uh, junior high, into uh, high school. And, you know, almost immediately, right away, you could sense that the atmosphere was different. And not only was um, to, you know, Roger's eloquent points about Nirvana, how the rock scene was changing, the hip hop scene was changing. You know, I remember, and you guys probably do in the late eighties, watching MTV, you know, rap was sort of like a novelty, fun, you know, I want to say um, it wasn't taken that seriously, I don't think. But, you know, obviously there were some serious rap groups out there like uh, KRS-One and Public Enemy and, you know, probably NWA. But uh, Tribe Called Quest in 1991, they were doing something a little different, not only with the jazz sounds, because a lot of the West Coast bands were kind of sampling... Like uh, Parliament and George Clinton records, and they had these synthesizer sounds that you probably hear in like a lot of Dr. Dre's uh, album. They used to call it the G-funk sound, but on the East Coast, they were doing something a little different. Uh, and Tribe Called Quest, um, what and what and what struck I remember when they said they got Ron Carter to play on the record, and he was a serious musician. He's like, you know, this is a rap album, and like, I really don't want to be associated with something where there's going to be a lot of cursing or there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, promote, you know, what the media would call promoting violence. And that record just doesn't have any of it. I think I might've heard like three or four curses. Uh, And there was no talk about violence and there was no, there was none of all the um, stereotypes you, you might've heard back in those days where, you know, rap is a bad thing for kids to be listening to, or we're going to sticker these albums. You know, a lot of it was about positivity. A lot of it was about um, growth as a human. A lot of it was the song lyrics were about you know, you know, celebrating life. And um, you know, Q Tip, who was the main uh, MC on the record, was also the main producer on the record. So uh, there, I, I you know he's a very significant artist in the fact where he could make all the beats and rap at the same time. A lot of people can't do that. Maybe you think of like Dr. Dre or Kanye West or the from Wu-Tang who can actually make the beats, but also rap. So it's a, there's not that and havoc from mob deep, who is another rap group from Queens that uh, q Q-tip helped discover in a certain sense. He introduced those guys to the record label, but, um, Obviously, they had a really cool video called Scenario. And I I don't, if you go back and look at it now, it kind of looks weird, but I remember seeing it for the first time. It was the first video I ever remember showing like Microsoft Windows, where they would kind of cut back and forth to the different artists. And that song also had uh, a relatively unknown artist uh, on the song called Buster Rhymes, who obviously. kind of a household name now because he was friends with the guys in the tribe called quest but yeah it was a very positive record it was very different from a lot of the other rap music that was being made at the time and uh you know um it still sounds awesome i really like the drums i really like the rhyming uh i the the only small criticism i was have is like maybe it's a little too long But, um, you know, I would say about uh, Nevermind and uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic as well is that even though these albums were made as compact discs, I think primarily in 1991, the vinyl was definitely on its way out. But all these recordings, it's hard for me to not listen to them in their entirety because I think they're all part of a, a big musical movement, almost like a symphony, like just to hear them one at a time, yeah, like it's cool to hear it Smells Like keen Spirit or Scenario or uh, Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers on their own. But I think you lose something when you don't hear this stuff in their entirety. And I think that's probably uh, where the artists, the recording artists were coming from. Uh, you know, music. I don't think any of these bands were, were like setting out to make singles. I, I think they wanted to make a piece of music. Uh, uh, Roger I know you spent some time uh, Listening to this record uh, You have any thoughts on this one
1: Yeah I mean, for, I mean <clears throat> The album's title is also Referred to the status of black men In society at the time As well as the bass frequencies uh, In the songs and the music um, It features the album cover With a kneeling woman painted in Afrocentric colors And it at the time was Not considered uh, when it was Released by Jive Records, they had no. Oh, they they really had no faith in the record. They thought it was not going to be good, um, just like you know Nirvana, and they had uh, a bit. There was a war going on within the band, you know, with that label and their lawyer and management, and they all jumped ship and joined uh, Russell Simmons. They jumped from Cool DJ Red Alert, uh, who was their manager, and they fired everybody. And surprisingly, at the time, and he was influenced specifically, he says, by N.W.A.'s record Straight of Compton for maintaining that sort of low fi uh, recording structure, you know, and, and he did some things on this album. There's uh, one particular song and I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it there was there's one song where he has a, 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 a drum sound that's three different snares all layered on top of each other.
2: Yeah. He, that was one of his, uh, techniques was layering the drum sounds. And, he,
1: and that person would be Q-tip. who yeah. You know, this, the band was Fife dog and Q-tip. Um, and was it was it, a third it, member
2: named, uh, Shaheed Muhammad, who wasn't really it. a rapper. He was more of a DJ and was a beat maker himself, but he's still pretty active and he, he's, he's still doing a lot of producing,
1: uh, and, and another guy named Jerobi White.
2: Yeah, Jerobi was on the first record and then he kind of disappeared for a while That's right. and then he came back on their latest album and it's weird he he had a, like a second career as a, like a chef in New York City somewhere.
3: But um well uh, yeah. it's funny you say that because uh, uh listening to it the other day, one thing I felt, you know, besides realizing that it was 1991, which if you had asked me prior I probably would have put it later like 94, you know, I just didn't know. But um, what's interesting about that time is that it's patently New York City sound. If you think about it, you got uh-huh. you know you've got that Chili Peppers L.A. sound and you've got that Nirvana Seattle sound. But this is an album that yeah, it's a jazz and, and hip hop you know hybrid in some respect. But it's it's a New York City sound, which Definitely. I think is really really cool about listening to you know you feel, you really feel like you're walking around the city if you just listen to it. And uh, so I thought that was some some, some kind of an emotion in uh, motion that was evoked after listening to it again. And, and that, yeah. That jazz, yeah, go ahead. That textural, that textural jazz aspect to it, which is also, you know, very prevalent in the Chili Peppers. Blood Sugar Sex Magic is a huge jazz influenced um, album in its own right. So something was in the water in those <laughs> that year, obviously.
2: Yeah. And uh, to your point, it's it's a really smooth album. And I think that there's a really nice uh, contrast between Q-Tip's voice, who does have this like quintessential New York accent, you know, and uh, Fife Dog has a really rest in peace, by the way. He passed away uh, a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But um, he's got uh, a great uh Delivery he's got a great flow Himself and Roger you probably remember This but um, of all People Michael Rappaport made a Documentary about Tribe Called Quest And
1: rhymes and rhythms Before like Michael
2: Rappaport Is you know he's kind of had like a third life Now as like an internet Instagram Celebrity but I thought that movie was Pretty well done
1: Yeah, It 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 played Sundance it was a big hit Yeah you know and Just think about you know how influential The album was just like My Bloody Valentine's Loveless made everybody start to sort of play this guitar through uh, almost like a gigantic pedal, which was a synthesizer. You know, this album, you know, a lot of bands started utilizing that technique, particularly in England, that this band, you know, this jazz rap or, you know, as they call it. Influenced uh, another equally great band from Brooklyn uh, a year later, which was Diggable Planets. I mean, I yeah. I, some reason I don't think you get one without the other. You know, uh, particularly Diggable Planets without without this album breaking like it did. And again, this album was a small slow seller that ended up becoming you know um, certified platinum. You know, by
3: nineteen ninety five. Yeah. George, what's what's uh, what's Wu Tang Clan doing in nineteen ninety one?
2: I don't think I think that RZA. And uh, his cousin Jizza, genius. They, I think they were standalone artists at the time, and they had some uh, records out that, like, I didn't even know about. I didn't really hear about Wu Tang till like a two or three years later, and they kind of just like. So blew it's fair.
3: It, it's fair to say that a tribe called Quest may have even trailblazed for that sound that that epic new york sound that wu-tang owns i've been mean, we think yeah. we've been hungry re- forever and in, in time i mean yeah i mean
1: I, I always feel wu-tang's just a whole nother animal personally it kind, kind of it, is it, yeah it kind <laughs> of <is. laughs> hardcore. Well, were, you know what?
2: those guys like rizza and um,
1: Q-tip, punk, rock,
2: those guys were you know geniuses in the fact that like there was no internet in those days there was no shazam like these guys are sampling and looping records. Like this was never done before. Like these guys mm-hmm. essentially created a new recording technique. Like Q tip would hear
0: a well, song. It had,
1: it had been, I mean, like, sampling been around since 1982, 83, when that really started to hit. And it was in the late 80s. I mean, Public Enemy had been doing it way before that.
2: Yeah, but, they were. But you know, I would put Q tip and those guys in you know, pioneers of using the the
3: M- more obscure, more obscure samples too,
2: or just like the technique was used. They, they use a sequencer called the the MPC, where they could trigger the drum sounds and they could record the loop or the record um, to make what a rap song essentially is now. So, but I think Roger, the point I'm trying to make is that these like specific individuals, like they. they they had to go and find the record out of a crate in some like secondhand store. And they knew they, they couldn't reference it on the internet. They just said, I'm going to listen to this record. I like this, you know, two or four bar sample and I'm going to put some drums on it and I'm going to layer the drums. And you know, the, 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 <laughs> the tribe called quest records, they, the, those drums that they sample are like analog drums. Those are like real humans playing it, not, so much oh, yeah. as the digital music, they were, they were, were they were
1: they were experimental and influential in trying to recreate a, a live sound session in the background. I mean, you listen to the record loud, sounds like you're you know listening in a club. I
2: mean, yeah. That was
1: what they were. That's what they were trying to do. Yeah, and I mean, they they mixed it all on the Nev eight. Is it called Nev N e v e? You would know that George an eight oh six eight mixing console. The exact same one that was used by John Lennon. There's a little bit of trivia there.
2: Wow. And, uh, yeah, Pete, just to, you know, I think, I think you know, uh, Tribe Called Quest is a very influential hip-hop group. And, you know, the, that area of Queens was, you know, you had Nas, you had uh, Mob Deep, uh, Noriega. There was just a lot of artists from, like, this very small part of the world really right they're not these guys all kind of grew up near each other and their music became like uh, world famous really but uh yeah a lot of like it was called digging in the crates these guys would go and just find records sample them and then put the drums on them and uh you know RZA from Wu-Tang was doing a lot of the same thing uh and Kev I don't know did did, uh Tribe
4: do you remember hearing this out in California at all i i was first of all i'm really glad that you guys are you know were acknowledging this band because i hadn't listened to this album i can't remember last time i listened to it i listened to it today just to refresh myself and uh brought back a lot of memories but i think i had it i didn't have it. i think a roommate of mine again in chico either him or his lady um had this album and uh maybe i'm asking who it was and obviously it's, it's a it's the name of a band that as soon as you hear it, you're not going to forget it, um, and just enjoying it. And you know, it wasn't a lot of it's not a lot of benefits of living with three other guys in college, but the you know music and drugs for the you know kind of offset the the dirty dishes. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I was fortunate enough to hear it back then, and and listen to it today. You can just kind of he- you can he- I can't, I couldn't even think of like a lot of the bands that was reminded but there's i feel like there's just so many bands that come after that you hear traces of of quest in in them you know it's just uh it, i mean you know so many musicians have said i've credited it for influencing them and you can you can hear it in so many other bands
2: yeah and um one other thing that uh, i know we're going to talk about the red hot chili peppers record but uh during this time was kind of like the age of um in living color or the Arsenio hall show where a lot of these, you know, African-American artists kind of were getting some visibility and getting some, uh, you know, uh, spotlight that, you know, it didn't really happen. And I think that, you know, tribe called quest was one of the pioneers of like, you know, they were getting out in the, um, mainstream early. And, uh, I think that, you know, their success uh, paved the way for a lot of uh, the, the, the groups that came after them. And, yeah, Pete, to your point, it's this was called the golden age of hip-hop, like the early 90s East Coast sounds with all those artists. And then you had on the West Coast was like Dr. Dre, Tupac, and all those guys making, you know, the sounds are very distinctly different. And um, it was just a great time for music and, you know, hip-hop in general, you know.
1: Despite Absolutely. Tupac being from
2: Brooklyn, <laughs> yeah, he's from Brooklyn, Baltimore, then Oakland's, you know. Yeah. But
3: you know, but George, it's it's further proof to a thing that we've always said is that the music and and, and culture in general experienced a renaissance in art and uh, you know in the nineties, in the early nineties, you know, and it, it's it, this is all just further, further proof. You're talking about three albums that couldn't be more different, and they're all they're they're out in the same week. Same, a, day. A, a, same, one, day. same day. That's the same these day. These all three albums came out on the and TV. a week later, Bad Motor Finger I think came yeah, out. Bad I Motor mean, Finger but, uh, you know that was pretty pretty amazing, pretty amazing stuff. But as um, one
1: reviewer said, and particularly at that time, going back to Nirvana really quickly, what it was at that time was finally these this generation, our generation X, finally had been discovered by the mainstream. We finally had something that we could Hold dearly to our own that came from our, you know, creativity. We no longer were a slave to the boomers and their their incredible buying power over the years and influence on, you know, what was the status quo. And yeah. it's, it's, uh, you know, th- these t- other two albums certainly help, uh, sort of change that shift, that dynamic.
3: Um, Most definitely. More and, equity. And, and, and
1: the, the low end theory, again, like you were saying, George. Is the first really great rap record or hip hop record that you know talked about relationships, talked about date rape,
3: you yeah. know,
1: talked about consumerism. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, social. I mean, you know, outside of Public Enemy, there weren't that and 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 uh, KRS One from Boogie Down Productions. There aren't that many that you can point to right at that moment um, that uh, expressly, you know, uh, embraced that sort of uh, uh, focus.
2: They were definitely doing something different. And they were definitely doing something cerebral and it wasn't, you know, for uh, shock value or it wasn't, no. you know, trying to exploit uh, certain unfortunate uh, circumstances of, uh, you know, I guess like the black community uh, living in New York. Like, they, 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 If you listen to the lyrics, it's, it's really feel good and aspirational and hopeful and uh, celebratory, which was not really, uh, the case for a lot of the records that were being made and uh i'm glad that it's really you know it, it was a successful record and it's still uh, really thought highly of you know to, to this day so it's, uh, before,
3: uh, it, go ahead before we get too far ahead of ourselves though on the on um or maybe this is maybe this particular point is best saved for after or at the end here but i mean does 1991 how does it how does it stack up against say 1965 which i've heard you multiple times over the years we've known each other or reference george
2: no i i think it well i would i always read about 1991 versus 1967
3: which 67. i don't have the
2: list in front of me but i know that's the year of uh sergeant pepper's lonely heart club band i know Jimi hendrix had a record the doors had a record, uh I don't know, man. I think we could do an, an episode of uh, discussing we as, the merits do, of. Both. But
3: do we, as Generation Xers, own that 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 uh, rev- musical revolution of the same potency as the as the '60s? I mean, can people go back and say the early '90s were like that? That they had that same offering to culture, same same paradigm shift. In what people how people consumed music and what they consumed and what they liked. You follow me?
1: Yeah. Hey, you got to remember in 1967, I experienced uh, Jimmy uh, Hendrix, Sgt. Pepper, Beatles, Velvet Underground, uh, 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 Love, The Piper's at the Gates of Dawn, Disraeli um, Gears by Cream, Axis Bold as Love, also Jimi Hendrix the same year, Surrealistic Pillow, and that changed consumerism in the way that we looked at the mall buyers that um, They weren't mall buyers then, but in that's quite, a,
3: that's quite a roster. That's a tough roster. That's a tough roster.
2: But dude, so is you know Pearl Jam, ten bad everything, everything, yeah. everything you said in the cold.
3: Everything you said in the cold open.
2: Was, it's 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 really tough, but um, um, yeah, I think it's just as significant, just as meaningful. I mean, a lot, you know with the, the grunge uh, or, or alternative. And I remember uh, Chris Novoselic said they asked him about grunge. He's like, dude, isn't that something on your shower curtain? He's like, what does that even mean? But like, you know, the Seattle rock bands and, uh, you know, hip hop bands. I mean, that was that was like a revo- revolutionary uh, sound that changed the recording industry. I mean, everything... Really changed. It, it was different, man. A lot of stuff changed, but uh yeah, I think it, it it's a very significant year,
4: man. I mean, Kevin, I don't know what you think. No, I mean, it's it certainly it, there's you, it, there's not a lot of times you look back at history and you see this kind of tectonic shift of of music, and that is certainly one of them. It's kind of funny because I was reading just reading a lot of different articles today about that time period and. I saw one headline that I had to click on because the name of the article was basically how Nirvana ruined rock and roll, and I was curious to see what the uh, the angle was there. And the this author, and I don't care who wrote it, um, basically his argument was that because Nirvana opened that door for punk rock or you know punk pop rock, however you want to categorize it, because we always got to put a label on on music that uh Nickelback and Creed were the two bands that this author cited that uh, that they never would have gotten to where they did popularity-wise, success-wise without Nirvana. <laughs> but, you know, anytime there is a musical revolution, um there's going to be there's going to be copycat bands. And the Beatles and have copycat bands that suck I balls, mean, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course. And I mean, I would always argue that Nickelback and uh and creed are a small price to pay for basically grunge, you know, completely killing and burying the, the hair metal bands. And this is comes to my hair metal. And my first concert was, uh, was we'll radio
1: so. Radiohead because of Nirvana. So, well, you
4: know, it, ex- exactly. It's like, you know, it, it's a small price to pay to <laughs> oh, kind of close the, close the chapter on the eighties on the eighties music, which, uh, which it certainly did. I think it was a member of great whites. It's one of those hair bands. I think it might have been somebody great. Why that was kind of a famous interview where he says the first time he heard Nirvana and uh, teen spirit that he knew it was, that over. they were done. It, it was, was over. Was there over. It was, there, it was there's one. I
2: remember metal. There was uh, the singer from Warren. Uh, warrant. His name was Janie Lane. And he's like, we were like the face of the, the, the record label. We were, we were out there killing it. We were doing this cherry pie song. And he goes, I remember Coming back to New York to the headquarters, uh, to talk about the next project. And he was I like, walk in the the lobby and there's this wall-sized poster of Allison Chains, dirt on the wall. And he's like, right then and there, he's like, This is over for us. He's like, I just I'm, like this is over. And it was just like that. Vaporized.
1: And, and you know what, George? Good fucking riddance.
2: <laughs> well, uh, with 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 that being said pete uh would you like to uh, round out the conversation with the third Ooh. album from september 24th 1991
3: yes is- yes i will um blood sugar sex magic you know uh, is an album that we're all very familiar with myself i have a personal connection to it uh you know i i burned a hole in this tape. I loved it so much. It was one of the first tapes I ever got. I think my dad's girlfriend, Trudy, gave it to me <laughs> as a, for for as a gift. I had no you idea. You were 13 was. at the time. I was young and I just could not get enough of it. I mean, I absolutely loved it from beginning to end. And as it as it goes on, there this is an album that stands the test of time. I put it in the same division as like Check Your Head by the Beastie Boys for example just timeless it's an album that you can absolutely listen to from begin to end it offers up jazz it offers up hip-hop energy if you for for lack of a better way to, to describe it you know flea is an incredible musician they even have you know tri- their own tributes to Louis armstrong and you know and various trump uh you know horn uh action on that album robert and, uh with uh robert johnson yeah they they did they uh, did a robert johnson cover long before i ever knew who robert johnson was um and uh you know it obviously bears mentioning it's produced by rick rubin i think the first time he he worked with them and you know that i think uh, getting a little guidance and a little production out of uh, out of him changed that band's world they went from being, as Roger mentioned earlier, a Los Angeles local band to maybe one of the biggest. I mean, they're 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 like you too big. I would think. Is that a fair statement? I yeah. mean,
1: every time I say that or think that, it makes me weirded out because yeah, it's a small funk yeah. band in Los Angeles that nobody took that seriously. The shows were a lot of fun but you thought of them as just being you know a bunch of goofballs making a racket, you know and yeah. they, they weren't serious as punk and they weren't
3: no but I mean like but they but they they also represented some some kind of freedom that I think a lot of people yeah. well, latched on to rather than in, in some respect it was it was uh, Anthony Kiedis made it allowed made it it okay for you know <laughs> a, a, high, a middle school kid to freak out a little bit you know i mean that it was a the album had incredible mass appeal but it's it's also incredible incredibly put together and even even the the album art and this chili pepper symbol the asterisk that was it's it's so perfectly gen x you know it really it really it really felt it really landed in a pocket of emotion for generation x in a special way if you ask me i mean i the title was was a little daring and edgy at the time, you know what I mean? Blood sugar, sex, magic, Roger. We're gonna, you know, but the songs were fucking phenomenal. I could have lied. I can listen to that song over and over and it's over so again, and, and and did, yeah, and I did, you know, yeah. uh, even even no, the I, the title I, track, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, is oh, is amazing. My psycho favorite. sexy. Sir Psycho Sexy is just, I mean, I would listen to that thing and just sing it back word for word as loud as I could, you know.
1: He just had his darkest as, as a sexual pervert. And that well, was, no, that was it's, I was just reading it. That, he intended that to be. That was him extrapolating all of his darkest, carnal, like womanizing element that he was going through in his head. And he felt like he was that's breaking the girls about too. Yeah. <laughs> i'm going for women
3: like fucking you know that song is uh, is an unbelievable fucking song one thing
2: that i really noticed about um blood sugar sex magic is just the way they sequence the songs where they would be doing like something really funky and like extended like instrumentals and then they would go into like breaking the girl which has like that doesn't sound like anything else on the album. And just, and then they would go back into, I'm looking at the track listing, like, Funky Monks. So, like, you'd have like Frushante and Flea just like slamming it out. And the drums are awesome too, by the way. Uh, Chad Smith, who is a really awesome drummer. It,
3: it also, it you also got to mention that, I mean, uh, I read that Ketis had just become sober because of the death of Halal mm-hmm. Slavic he was freaked out and he wrote under the bridge which obviously we've we, we've heard that song once or twice yeah. and uh but you know if you think about it that song was so personal to him i mean i also read that he couldn't even perform it for a lot of years for, i think i know, read that
4: i think i read back at some point that rubin, rick rubin actually saw yeah, the lyrics written down and asked him about it. And, and he said like that he didn't consider it a song or he didn't really consider it lyrics. Yeah. Um, I don't know what he was just... He said this is not for A the- poem in his mind or whatever. And Ruben was the one that had to convince him to actually try to, to record it and put it to music, which is interesting.
2: Yeah, he said that this is not for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And Rick Rubin's like, why? He's like, well, we don't do this. We don't do this. And he's like, well, why don't you? And he kind of like... Yeah. You know, like to Pete's point, Rick Rubin was kind of getting the most out of these guys that, you know, he was able to harness their, uh, you know, their maximize their capabilities. You know, I don't think that the the, you know, when you listen to the older red hot chili pepper stuff, which I like, uh, but it just, it has like a different production quality. It has a different song structure. Like they were really doing something, uh, different. And on this record, uh, they're doing, they, you know, they're heading in another direction, but um,
0: uh, well, go ahead, Roger.
1: It, I mean, it was said at the time in the early records, which I prefer, even though they're of lesser quality and they are. The thing was, they never could quite capture their live experience on a record live. I mean, the band was fearless, completely deranged. You know, they, of course, would come out with socks on their dicks and uh, socks on their cocks, as they'd call it or just flea would be just completely fucking naked. Um, they would, you know, they, they were anarchy. They would open up for every band under the planet. I saw them a million times opening up or, or headlining with a bunch of, you know, from Minutemen to fire hose and meat puppets and whoever came through town, you know, they became like Jane's addiction was for a while, like the household band that you saw them. And so we, you know, me and my friends, you know, we, we loved a freaky Styley and uplift mofo party plan even though they're juvenile, um, not very introspective, and you know the party boy is filled with heroin, you know, that was, that was that was their thing. Although we were all into cocaine at the time. Heroin comes later. But the um thing was um you know they, they had this certain I mean Hillel, you know, it's, no doubt Freshante is their best guitar player technically. There's no doubt. I mean no, nobody would argue that. But Hillel in his sort of spiritedness and his love for funk and his love, you know, uh, for jazz and funk was able to kind of elicit a just, just bouncier energetic sound that I was really into. And then, you know, mother's milk starts with the, with the metal with Fashante coming up mother's milk. The album becomes more of a metal ish record, right? That was like their run from punk to sort of this metal sound, and introducing the first ballad that they would ever sing, you know, uh, and then boom, the next album they introduce like fucking four or five ballads to. Then they became a ballad band <laughs> somewhere down the road, in my opinion, as they become more and more famous. You know, regular when like that shit. When you know.
2: mention Hillel, when Hillel uh, died. They also lost their original drummer, who was a guy called Jack Irons. And the interesting thing about Jack Irons was he was, not only was he the original drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, he also met this guy uh, who was pumping gas somewhere. I don't know if it was San Diego or LA, and his name was Eddie Vetter. And Eddie Vetter had a tape of his vocals, and Jack Irons gave it to his friends who were in a band that was looking for a singer and uh, that actually became Pearl Jam. So he helped connect those guys, the band with the singer, but also Jack Irons actually wound up playing with uh, Pearl Jam for a couple of years because uh, Pearl Jam had an issue maintaining drummers for uh, various reasons. So that's a interesting, uh, you know, Jack Irons uh, occupies a pretty uh, interesting piece of rock and roll history uh, late 80s early 90s.
3: Guess- Roger Roger not to be confused with Jeremy Irons. No, not <laughs> the the actor, the British actor I believe.
1: Yes. Is he British? Yes. yes. I think they're certainly not the same uh family. Uh yeah, Jack Irons and Cliff Martinez was uh, uh the drummer on the original album, the first Red Hot Chili Peppers album. And Cliff Martinez went on to be a film composer. He did the music for the movie um, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. So it was quite a weird, and he did Spring Breakers and Contagion and Traffic and Solaris for him. And he did the movie Drive, you know, with Nicholas Wendell and Refn. So the Chili Peppers, you know, uh, he played with Captain Beef The Chili Peppers gone through a few drummers that went on to become famous for other things as well before they landed on the guy would become their permanent and probably who, most famous.
3: But who drummed on Blood Sugar was, was that uh, no, Chad? It was Chad. Yeah, Chad's Chad, Chad was so Chad's been there since then, yeah. really, right? I think he was on Mother's Milk, too.
2: Yeah, I think him and Fushante oh, came milk, yeah. together on Mother's Milk, and he also plays with Sammy Hagar's bands, Kevin. I know that you're a big fan of Sammy's uh, latter-day work.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, and him and his tequila just really top-notch.
2: <laughs> Kevin, you saw... Um, the red hot chili peppers play overseas didn't you it was a pretty good show right
4: i've seen them i've seen them three times um first time i believe it was up in seattle no the first time I actually was in uh was in madrid it was my first time in europe so i was about 23 years old this is 1994 and i've just gotten to uh madrid for the end of my trip because i was thinking about possibly staying and living there at that time and my first day in town i uh see a a poster for the chili pepper concert in like five days or something and 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 i immediately go to a tourist office try to figure out where i get ticket they direct me to a record store i had my long hair going at that time and i walk in walk up to the counter and this young spaniard looks at me and says red hot chili peppers and i was like yes dude tell me you have a ticket I have ticket. I was like, "Fuck yes!" Yeah. So I go to the show by myself. Old bullfighting arena. So it's the concrete, you know, seat steps, and uh, goddamn, who is the horrible freaking band that opened? No, uh, come to me. I, I have to think of it because like it made no sense that this band was opening for them. Anyway, I always say that if if you're pressed on like the best. <laughs> no I wish um, <laughs> no, no, this there's, there's one horrible song that's eluding me whatever um, I, I just sat by myself up in the stand I had a little I had just gotten from Copenhagen there I had a little bit of weed left so I saved it for like five days fashioned a uh, freaking you know toilet paper roll aluminum foil pipe for myself and uh, smoked like right during the intermission and I just made my way through the crowd and I was about five deep thinking I'd be the one of the few that would understand ketis and you know, talking to the talking in English, and these fuckers. Of course, I, I doubt I don't know if they're fluent in Spanish, but they're fluent enough that every time they addressed the crowd, they were speaking Spanish. So I was actually from, one. they from this. LA. <laughs>
3: yeah,
4: well, there's a lot of people from LA that don't necessarily speak Spanish. <laughs> um, but I had the Spanish translate for me. Like, what did they to say? They said they played the song for the Bulls. But the most amazing thing was I've never experienced anywhere, and I only it only would have happened in Europe because they played the show they break they do their encore the encore is over the concert is over the lights are on the roadies are breaking down the stage i mean and this never happens in the states In the states when those lights come on people are you know i don't care how much they're crying they want more those lights come on people are done and they know it's over and these Spaniards were not budging. there had to have been a beast, you know, I don't know, 40, 50,000 people in this bullfighting arena. And I'm up front and I, and I got a freaking, I, I just want to get out because I got to pee so fucking bad and holding it for this whole goddamn concert. And I'm and I'm thinking to myself, people, this concert is over. And this is actually a one hot minute tour. So it was with uh, Navarro as freaking their guitarist. was obviously probably everybody's least favorite album, but it was that tour. And uh, these Spaniards are just not relenting they are just cheering screaming and after about 10 freaking 15 minutes i don't know how long you see the four of them appear behind the stage at the very top of the stadium and they just start running jumping on these concrete you know steps back and the place just goes fucking nuts as you would expect and they played like two or three more songs and i've never seen that in any show in my life where, you know, the show is fucking over, man. And these crowd, these crowd, just they, these Spaniards who willed, willed <laughs> some more songs into existence. That's awesome.
2: Well, I think that probably talks to the power of, uh, the music man that, um, not only is this, uh, a U.S. Uh, phenomenon, but, uh, a global phenomenon. And, um, I didn't see it. A lot of people are talking about this Woodstock 99 documentary, which quite frankly, I don't really have too much of an interest in, but I, if I'm not mistaken, weren't the red hot chili peppers, the headliners for that show. One of the, one of the nights they were for sure. Yeah. And I remember in.
1: That's when they wore the light bulbs on their head.
2: Yeah. I remember that. And uh, I remember that (laughs) Kita said they took a helicopter out of there and they just turned around and like everything was on fire. And they're like, okay, uh, I think the 90s are over now. Was that 1999, I believe?
3: That was 1999,
2: yes. Yeah. And by that time, I think there was a major difference between uh, 1991 and 1999.
1: And yeah, those new Metal kids came aboard and fucked those guys.
3: Yeah,
2: I think that, you know.
3: Kevin, Kevin, had a, Kevin was burning a hole in the Limp biscuit CD those days.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I just think. Hey, that the- co-
4: sorry, sorry, real quick. Collective Soul—that's who opened that fucking <laughs> concert in <laughs> okay, Madrid. So. Collective Soul. I was like, how does that happen? How does? Was it just a European tour? Like, Collective Soul was fucking opening for the Chili Peppers. I can't mm-hmm. believe that they opened for the Peppers in the States anywhere. That would have been, um, it would have been ridicule. I—I'll like, never understand how they were the fucking opening band for that show. Uh,
1: I was dragged to one time see something so awful. I don't even want to talk about. It. There's something very similar to that, and I just wanted to die. No, now you <laughs> yeah. have to,
3: Roger. Deciderate Roger, take us out, Roger,
2: take us. We've been talking about good music. Take us out yeah.
3: with some bad music. Yeah. Hey, Robert, Roger,
4: was it? Was it a? Was it one night only with Fred Durst? Was it a one man show? I, I, the crash I, test on me.
1: Um, what's the, the goddamn band? It's like, like, like 1997 Matchbox 20.
4: Oh God! Oh, oh yes, Match
1: twenty. I, so um I was kind of seeing my friend uh Ralph's sister for a minute. We we're hanging out, we we're buddies, you know, kind of, you know, whatever. And she worked for, you know, I got to meet Alanis Morissette through her. I got to see the Family Values tour, which did fucking include Limp Biscuit, unfortunately. But it also had Rammstein, which was kind of cool. But the the I went to go to Avalon Theater in Chicago to see Matchbox 20 with her and for that, I made her go with me to go see R.L. Burnside the next week because I just I needed a palate cleanser after that. I I was so miserable. I wanted to I I could not. I wanted to
3: die. And did Burnside? A, did Burnside do the Sopranos theme? I got to know real quick. No, he does a song at the end uh, of. I no. I know who Burnside is. I'm <laughs> saying, did he do the Sopranos theme no, it's song? A, it's
1: a three Alabama three. Oh, okay. The uh, but he does have a song at the end of one episode called shuck dub and goes check all
3: i could listen to rl burnside all day i love that music. that music would trigger for me
1: um i'm telling you uh yeah fuck matchbox 20 fuck all that shit fuck google Goo dolls fuck
4: hey roger roger we can we'll drive around the town and let the cops chase us around okay <laughs>
1: wow well
2: I think we've gone off the we've strayed from the path a little bit, but what I would recommend is that everyone uh, listening here do yourself a favor, uh, dig up these records. You could get them in um, basically any format, but you know, probably Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, It's crazy how much time and the three of us or the four of us probably had to decide which record we wanted to buy that day. And that was, uh, I've read a couple of, uh, retrospectives about September 24th, 91. And like, you know, a lot of kids had to make a big decision on what they were going to buy that day. But, um, you know, now you can listen to all this stuff, uh, at any time. And I would recommend that you do that. And I would recommend that you hit the like button, the subscribe button, leave us a comment. We really appreciate everyone listening to us, uh, nerd out here a little bit tonight. And-
3: real quick, George, real quick, I just got to ask Roger, what is, just real, you have one second to answer this question. What's the best Jeremy Irons picture of all time? Reversal of Fortune. Okay, good. Go ahead, George.
1: And
2: uh, on that note, I'm going to ask you to open the door very slowly. Uh, Pete, please uh, tap the citrus, and we'll see you on the next $5 bus. Dead
1: ringer. Sorry, John. Cron- David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Sorry, I amended that. Thank okay, you. George. Okay.
3: Well, okay well, within Thank you, gentlemen. We'll see you soon.
2: on Kevin, you'll be back soon for uh, another session. And uh, we look, We appreciate your time tonight, sir.
4: Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. That was a good one, guys.